All right. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day and uh, thank you for um, the opportunity to look to your word, to think about who you are as our triune God, uh, to think about what it means to worship you, the one true and living God. And so we pray for your help and we pray that you'd be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just finished our study in Leviticus, uh, so if you missed any of those, I think uh, all but maybe one session was recorded and is on um, the website if you ever want to go catch up on those. But in Leviticus, you'll remember we saw a bunch of instructions for the Old Covenant people, right? There's an Old Covenant, an Old uh, Testament, um, and so they're, they're given these rules. And really the goal of, of Leviticus, it talks about holiness, but the goal of the holiness is so that God's people can have God dwelling among them, right? And that they would not be destroyed by his holiness. And uh, as new covenant believers, we live in the reality of what that pointed to. Jesus has come, right? The, the one who was pointed to by all the things we saw in Leviticus arrived and brings in the new covenant. And so, so Jesus comes and he tabernacles among us. He dwells among us. Uh, which, remember, tabernacle is the place of God's special presence and dwelling among his people in the Old Covenant. And then John 1 uses the same word, referring to tabernacle, that Jesus tabernacled among us, okay? Um, and uh, he rose again. He's the first fruits. We saw some of that in Leviticus as well. And, uh, and so that we have the same goal, that God's people will be under God's perfect rule in God's perfect place. That is the ultimate uh, arc of the storyline. That's where it's going. And, and we actually, we have the same issue. The, the New Testament people still have the same issue, and it's sin, right? Sin is going to be our problem that will keep us out of God's perfect place. Um, let me read real briefly out of a section out of Revelation 21. So in Revelation 21, you'll remember, we're seeing the new heavens and the new earth. So kind of this is where the storyline is going. This is kind of the final uh, culmination of all the things that the Bible is pointing to. And, uh, and so we see some of these, these uh, themes. And so I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So all this stuff that it's been pointing to is what? God's presence among his people. And there's, in the new heavens and new earth, there's no temple by the time you get all the way to the end of the storyline, right? Because why? God is perfectly dwelling among his people. It's not just we have this place. He's, right, the, the, the whole place is filled with his special blessing presence for his people. Um, and the city, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For why? Because the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. So we're talking about God's presence, right? So that's what we said one of the key things about the storyline is. Uh, By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So what we're seeing there is God's blessing, God's presence and his blessing presence for his people. Verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we're talking about God's people, but we're also reminded sin is the problem, right? Um, you know, when, when you read that, you recognize if we took off that, except for if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, we all have a problem. None of us are going to be entering this kingdom according to, to everything that went before that, Right? But we hear about this lamb, we're reminded of the sacrificial system, how that all pointed to Jesus. He is the lamb of God. So we have the same issue. How, how can we who are unclean be made clean? How can we who are sinful be declared right before God and, uh, and set apart to God? And we, we see that it's through Jesus, but we're going to see um, 
a piece that we maybe overlook, and that's what we're going to focus on today. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 6 real quick. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So that's the same problem we've been talking about. We just saw it in Revelation 21. The ungodly are not going to inherit the kingdom. And then he goes through this whole list, and uh, we find that all of us have, to some degree, probably been characterized by something in this list of sin. And he says in verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So that's all this cleansing language, forgiving language, all the stuff we saw in Leviticus that, that in, you know, in their time period was really being fulfilled through the sacrificial system, but yet it was still, by God's design, just a shadow of the ultimate fulfillment that was going to come in Christ. Um, so, so we have all that happening. And then he says, uh, you're washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the part that we, we often focus on, rightly so, right? Because it's through Jesus that we have this forgiveness. Uh, here's the part we, we often don't think about. And by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit applies the work of Christ to us so that we benefit from it. So that we are actually made clean by the Holy Spirit before God on Judgment Day, right? We are actually sealed with the blood of Christ now, so that we are actually justified now, even though we still struggle with sin. Um, so we're, we're starting a series now on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We're going to, this morning, Lord willing, we're going to be looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, this morning, and then uh, some, some of the sessions, I think the next one as well, will kind of be more of a systematic study. So, so in theology, you have systematic theology, right? Which is basically like, we have a question, and so in this, say, this case, we want to know, who is the Holy Spirit, right? That's kind of what we're asking. Person and work of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he do? Um, and then what do we do is, systematically, we go and we find a bunch of verses all over the place that deal with that question and answer that question, and we put them all together. We pile them all up to get a systematic understanding of the answer, Okay. Um, so that's what we're going to do uh, today by looking at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be all over the Bible this morning. Uh, next week, the plan is to look at the inspiration uh, of Scripture. And, uh, and so that's where we're going to get more into the work of the Holy Spirit. Today's kind of more on the person of the Holy Spirit, who he is. Then we'll get into the work. That's also going to probably be a more systematic look. Um, and then we're going to start going into more of what we might call biblical theology, which biblical theology um, still focuses on the Bible. Both systematic and biblical are looking at what does the Bible say. But in biblical theology, we're going to look and see, okay, as we follow the way God has unfolded the plan of salvation throughout the whole Bible, there's a storyline to it, right? It happens in history. And so we actually have things like an old covenant and then a new covenant. And so we want to see how does the Spirit's person and work uh, how does he work throughout the covenants, throughout the time period of unfolding? So we want to understand uh, what was his work in the old covenant, right? Uh, what, what does he do in bringing in the new covenant? What does he do in the church age? So that's kind of how we're going to follow on that. So um, hopefully that gives you, uh, those, those of you who are big picture and you care where we're going, now you know. Those of you who don't, um, it's okay. It was only a few minutes of your time. You're all right. You're going to survive. So um, that's where we're going. And uh, so today we're going to look at why study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, then we're going to look at who is God, the doctrine of the Trinity, and then we're going to look at who is the Holy Spirit, and we're going to see the person of the Holy Spirit. So we have a lot to cover. Uh, we're just doing bird's eye view stuff, um, big picture type things this morning. So why study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? Um, well, one reason we would study it, and uh, these are kind of adapted a little bit from A.W. Pink's, um, at least I came up with these ideas as I was reading his, he didn't necessarily lay this out exactly this way, but A.W. Pink has a book, um, I think it's just called the Holy Spirit. Does anyone know? 
Okay, so uh, you can get that for free online because he's he lived a long time ago, so there's no copyright on that. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so one thing is uh, when it when it comes to uh, the great redemptive work here of God. Well, well, let me back up. First, first is he is vital, and what I mean by vital is life-giving. Think of vitals, right? Your vital signs, are, are you alive, are you not? He, he is life-giving when it comes to our own souls. So why study the Holy Spirit? Uh, he's vital, like literally vital to the life of your soul, okay? Um, and, and so I mean this in two ways, salvation and sanctification. One, when it comes to the great redemptive works of God, uh, through his son, it would all be in vain if it were not for the Holy Spirit. It, it would all be in vain. The, the son's incarnation, his perfect fulfillment of the law, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, all of those things end up benefiting us because the Holy Spirit applies it to us. Okay? There are, there are a lot of passages that show us the Spirit applies these things. In fact, there's passages that talk about how it's through the Spirit that the son is raised from the dead. So, yes, who raised him from the dead? The Father did through the working of the Spirit. Okay, so the Spirit's work is central to our, us benefiting from the work of Christ. Christ could have done all that and had it not applied to us, we would not, we'd be dead. So it is vitally important to us having new life. Your soul's life is wrapped up in the work of the Spirit. A.W. Pink writes, There is no spiritual good communicated to anyone but by the Spirit. Whatever God and his grace works in us, it is by the Spirit. Um, and we saw that in that 1 Corinthians 6 passage, right? You, you were dead, and you, but how, were, how did you become washed and cleansed and justified? By the Son of God, by the Spirit of God. Right? It doesn't just say the Son. It says Son and Spirit. I think we overlook that. So that's why I'm saying, why do we need to study this? I think we often overlook the Spirit's work in, in our salvation. And he's also vital to our sanctification, our daily Christian living, and our ultimately being set apart to God. Galatians 5.16 says we walk by the Spirit. That's how we live the Christian life, is by the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. Okay, so the second reason I would say we need to study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is that he is essential for gospel ministry. Uh, if we're going to have effective gospel ministry, uh, the, the church as a whole and individual Christians within the church, the Spirit's work is essential for this. It is vital. His work is vital. Um, when we come to the, the church's ministry as a whole, we are totally dependent on the Spirit. Um, completely dependent on the Spirit to do His work. We can pridefully think that we're going to get a lot done for God. I mean, you hear people talk that way, right? All the things that we're going to do for God. Right? We need people to rise up and do things for God. Without the Spirit's work, it does not matter how many people you get excited about doing things about for God. It's not going to happen. The Spirit has to do the work. And do we, do we need to work? Yes, we do work. But the Spirit must put, put strength in every step is, is one way we could think about that. Right? Um, and so, so let me give you some examples of this. Uh, Jesus. So Jesus is the Son of God, eternally God. He becomes a man though, Right? takes on human flesh. As a man, Jesus lives the perfect human life by the power of the Spirit. It is interesting that Jesus does not begin his messianic ministry in full until he's about in his 30s, right? And what, what kicks off the messianic ministry of Christ? Well, I said that's kind of like saying the messianic ministry of the Mess Messiah. But anyway, um, what, what kicks that off? At his, what's the first thing we see? The baptism, right? And what happens at his baptism? 
The Spirit descends on the man Christ Jesus. He is already God. I'm not saying he becomes, that. that is a, we're going to get to that in a minute. That's a doctrinal error to think that at that moment he all of a sudden gets imbued with Godhood or something. That's not what's happening at the baptism. But the Spirit empowers the man Christ Jesus, who is, yes, fully God, but it's through specifically the member of the Trinity we call the Spirit that he's going to do all this messianic work as the Son. He's going to do it as a man by the power of the Spirit. Uh, the, the apostles. Jesus tells the apostles to wait in Jerusalem as after his death and crucifixion. Wait in Jerusalem until what happens? The Spirit is poured out on them. Right? Um, the church. Sec, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 4-7. So after Pentecost, the church's ministry, we read about um, there are various activities by the same Spirit. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all for everyone. Okay, so God empowers the church's service. But listen to this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. So God, yes, we can say God. That's true. God empowers our work. But according to 2 Corinthians 12, the Spirit is empowering this ministry. You see what I'm saying? We, we have to be more precise in our understanding if we're really, and why is this such a big deal? Ultimately, because we want to know God. And if God is Father, Son, and Spirit throughout all eternity, you know, one, one in essence and three in persons, we want to know more of who God is. That's what we're after. So I think that's why it's important to think precisely on these things. A.W. Pink is helpful again. Uh, if, if the Orthodox seminaries turned out 100 times more pastors and missionaries than they are doing now, the churches would not be one bit better off than they are unless God vouchsafed a fresh outpouring of his spirit. And so all he means there is if the spirit isn't going to work, right? If God cut off the, the, the pouring out of his spirit on his people, you could turn out as many trained people as you want to do gospel ministry and it would have zero extra effect. The Spirit has to work through the people of God. That doesn't mean we don't have seminaries. It doesn't mean we don't learn. It means that the Spirit has to empower that work. It means that that's why we pray, Spirit, give strength to every stride here. We don't just go to seminary and then think, we don't need you, God. We can get this worked out because we went to school. Right? You don't do that as a Christian when you go to evangelize somebody. Don't worry about it, God. I got it. I understand. You know, I got my Romans road figured out. I got it. Do you, should you know something like the Romans road? Yes. That's the, the Spirit inspired that word. But the Spirit has to work through it. So you're saying, Lord, please open the eyes of this person, right? Um, number three, we tend to think too little or study, study this doctrine and think too little of the Holy Spirit. And I mean this in two ways when I say too little. Uh, one is we don't think about him much. He's not on our mind that often. We have faint ideas of who he is, but we don't give a conscious mental effort to thinking about the Spirit and his work in our lives. Okay, so we, we think of him too little. Um, the other way we can think of him too little is that we can think too little about what he's revealed about himself. And what I mean by that is we can have false ideas. So we can have faint ideas, weak ideas about the spirit, and we can have false ideas about the spirit. Both of those are thinking too little about the spirit. We do, when we don't think about the spirit, we're either going to have faint ideas or false ideas about the spirit and what he does. Um, and so, so specifically, when you talk about these false ideas, we have all sorts of mystical views where we try to detach the Spirit from the Word that He inspired, and we come up with all sorts of crazy things that the Spirit is doing. And, and that is a problem. We think that He speaks to us in his, some sort of small voice in an um, objective and authoritative way apart from His written Word. That's a problem. Um, 
A.W. Pink again says, Much dross has been mingled with gold. A fearful amount of unscriptural nonsense and fanaticism has marred the testimony that many give regarding the Holy Spirit. So to sum it up, uh, ignorance about the Spirit is dishonoring to God, specifically to the Holy Spirit, and it is damaging to us. Um, Now, there are things that we will not fully grasp. As finite human beings, there are things we will not fully grasp about who God is as the triune God. That's true. Uh, But he has revealed things to us, and we ought to gladly want to know who God is based on what he's revealed. And, And if we fail at this point, we fail at our main purpose in life, which is to know and love God. That's what I'm saying. If we don't know who God is as he's revealed himself, we have failed at the whole purpose of life. And we have foolishly passed by um, the source of joy, much like a, a person in a desert who is dying of thirst, passes by the stream that he so happens to stumble upon because he's just in a hurry to get on to the next thing. We do not want to be that foolish. God is the life-giving source of joy and everything we need. So we want to know God. And if we just move past things like the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and we just settle for this, well, I got this generic idea of God and this idea of Jesus, we're missing out on something God has revealed to us. God has revealed that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. That's what we're saying, okay? All right, so I think those are some reasons. You probably can think of other reasons. I'm, I'm sure you can. Um, but these are maybe three helpful reasons to just um, hopefully make you think, okay, well, th- there's a reason we're gonna spend probably seven weeks here studying the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, Okay? All right, everyone good so far? Thoughts, questions? All right, well, let's jump into the doctrine of the Spirit. Who is God? The doctrine of the Trinity. Um, Now, we could talk about the attributes of God, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Um, That's something about what God is like, but now I'm just talking about his essence. God is triune. Uh, Definition of the Trinity, there is one God, And he eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when we say this, we are asserting three three things, at least three things, about who God is. First, there is one God. That is what we are asserting. There is one God. There are not many gods. There is one God. Okay? The second thing we are asserting is that God has eternally existed in three persons. There's one God, three persons. Third, each person is fully God and not, what we mean by that is not simply parts of God. It's not like the Holy Spirit is one part and the Father is one part and the Son is one part and we just divide God up into parts. We have have, um, one God and yet each person is fully God. In other words, what we might say is possessing all the fullness of what it means to be God, the nature of God, the characteristics and attributes of God, the, the, the mindset of God, right? So we say God is triune, three, tri, unity, oneness, three in one. Um, Scripture does not use the word Trinity, but it is a good shorthand word uh, because I just said it it communicates three and oneness. Uh, And I think it's good shorthand based on what God has revealed about himself. And so that's what we're going to do now. We're going to look, has God revealed these things, those three propositions I just laid out? Does does God reveal those to be true through his self-revelation, the word? That's, that's what's important here. It's not just, well, this is who I think God is, or this is who you think God is, or God can't be that way because this is my philosophical starting point. Well, maybe your philosophical starting point is wrong. In fact, it is if God has said something different, right? Okay, so we want to know what does God say about himself? Do we see these things in the Bible? So number one, there is one God. Uh, I think I give you, let me see here. 
Yeah, I give you some passages of scripture throughout here, or at least excerpts. Um, so you don't necessarily have to turn to all those. In fact, uh, probably will not have time to turn to all of them. I may have you turn to a couple of them. Um, if you want, you can turn to Isaiah 45. We'll be there in just a minute. So turn to Isaiah 45, and then we'll probably go from there to Genesis. So just have that on your radar. But Okay, so there is one God. That's our first proposition. There is one God. While you're turning to Isaiah, I'm just going to briefly read, and you have this on your handout, uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Romans 3.30 says, God is one. 1 Corinthians 8.4 uh, over and against all the pagan gods, Paul says there is no God but one. Okay, now, look at Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. Oh, sorry. I'm in verse 23 and 22 now. I skipped down. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, everyone's like, whoa, where's that coming from? Sorry about that. Uh, so 20, uh, you know what? I think I'm actually in 21 and 22. I said 23, but I think I'm in 20. 21 and 22 here. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. Okay, so what gets repeated in there? Yeah, so I'm God. And how many gods are there? One, because he says there's no other. It's not me and then this other God and then this other God. It's not... The, I'm the Father and I'm God and now we actually have a totally separate God over here we're going to call the Son. It's I'm God and there's no other. We have one God and we see that he is both Lord and Savior. Right? Um, <clears throat> Genesis 1.1. Uh, 1, 1. You can turn to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. So in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, you guys probably know this already. Uh, we're going to look at a couple other verses in Genesis. Well, maybe actually only one other, two other verses. So... You, probably, you, may already, you may already have these in, in your mind. You may not need to turn to these two, uh, these two or three here. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, uh, we have one God right in the beginning creating everything. Um, now, I want to transition. To, I, just, I, I just want to mention that because you see that there. And I wanted to bring you Genesis 1 because the next verse takes us into our next proposition. God eternally exists in three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So we're going to talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit here in a second, but look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, so, so God creates everything. Then God said, or he hasn't created everything yet, but he's in the middle of creating, and he says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What, okay, what sort of pronouns are being used there? We have plural pronouns, right? So we have one God. We've already established that. That's very clear. But even in the first chapter of the Bible, we have plural pronouns. Yes? It's interesting because he uses, the th uses it three times. So it wasn't an errant translation. Sure, yeah. Three times to emphasize. Three times, yeah. Yeah, we have it used three times to emphasize it. Um, some people have said, uh, you know, look, this is just the royal we. Um, you know, like, we will do this, right? The problem is, in Hebrew, we don't find it used that way. This would be special pleading, is what I'm saying, to say that this is the royal we here. 
It's, it does not get used that way. Now, in our language, sure, we can look back and try to read that into it, but that's not the way they used it. So to be fair, we have to look at how have they used this. They have not used it as the royal we in other places. Um, others might say it refers to the angels, but the problem is we are not made in the images of angels. So it's clear this is not talking about angels. It's not God talking to the angels. Let us make man in our image. No, we're made in the image of God. Um, okay, uh, so, so we have... Uh, we have one God, but we already see that we have um, plural pronouns. So I realize this doesn't say Father, Son, and Spirit yet, but we're building the case, okay? Um, the Spirit is present at creation and is not a created being. Look at Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we had the Spirit mentioned earlier, right? He, he's not created. It's the Spirit of God. He's there. Um, in John 1, 1, so turn to, uh, turn to John 1 now. We're done with, with uh, Genesis for right now. Turn to John 1. And here we see that not only was the Spirit present at creation, but it's through the Son that everything was created, through the Son of God. So John 1, 1 through 3. And again, you, you may already have this passage memorized. If not, it'd be a good one to memorize. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we have this, in the beginning, that harkens back to Genesis 1, very clearly. That's what he's pointing back to. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. If you keep reading in John 1, 14, the Word is Jesus. He becomes, he becomes flesh and dwells among us. That is who the Word is. So he's with God, um, and he was God. So again, you're, see, you're seeing this, this, we have one God, but there's also a way in which we can speak of the Son being with God. Do you see what I'm saying? We have this, this three-in-oneness going on, even in John 1. He was in the beginning with God, verse 2. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, so can the Son be created? This not, you know, S-O-N. Can the Son of God be created, a created being? Logically, that's ruled out here, isn't it? If everything that is made was made through the Son, if the Son did not have a beginning point, then saying everything that was made doesn't work because he would have had to have been made separately. So logically, to say that everything that comes into existence, everything that has a beginning, essentially, was created by him means he had no beginning. He's eternal. Okay. So he's not created. Um, each person of the Godhead, this is our third proposition, each person of the Godhead is fully God. We see that in the John 1, 1 passage we just read, 1 through 3. Um, so you can keep looking at that. Now, um, how many of you have had uh, Jehovah Witnesses show up at your door? A lot of you have. Have you ever tried quoting this passage to them? No? What do you think would happen if you quoted this passage to them? You think they would say, you are correct, we're wrong. They call you a Hindu? You believe in multiple gods, yes, yes. But it's right here in the text. I mean, so, so what, what would they say about that? Yeah. So they say, a god. Yeah, a god. Um, and so there's actually a Greek grammar rule that, it, that explains why there is not the definite article in the Greek right in front of that. Because they're correct that the definite article is not there. Um, but according to Greek grammar, the definite article in the, is, is right before that and, and it applies to the second phrase where it talks about God. Uh, the other issue is they're a little selective in doing that because if you keep reading through John 1 where it keeps talking about God, um, they don't put the, uh, the, the uh, indefinite article in front of God throughout the rest of John 1 
because otherwise you'd end up with, right? We have, we have all these other gods running around and, and they're, tr so they don't like that. So they selectively, again, special pleading, they, they translate it one way here. And then as you keep going, they don't stick with their, with their rule that they've come up with. Okay. Um, so uh, anyway, but, but the, rather than getting all mixed up, turn to John 20 real quick, rather than getting all into the, the weeds here about Greek grammar with them, um, and by the way, the, 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 the translator, they didn't, for a long time, they didn't want to tell anyone who their translator was, you know, because they're trying to be all spiritual about it. And they were like, listen, you know, this is from God. God inspired our translator. Um, but once it finally came out who the guy was who translated, he actually does not know biblical Greek. Um, so he just took English translations and then kind of read theology back into it. Um, okay, but here, here's, I, I, that probably wouldn't be a profitable direction to go with that conversation either, just FYI at this point. But uh, John 20, verse 28 Jesus, after he's been resurrected, he appears to Thomas, who's been doubting that he's been resurrected, right? And uh, he says, and Thomas answered him. So, so Jesus shows him the scars, says, look, Thomas, it's me. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Okay, there, we do not have the same grammatical issue. The definite article is there. It is, you are the God. There's no way around this, okay? So my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, stop your false worship. Is that what it says? No, Jesus said to him, have you believed? So is Jesus approving or disapproving of what Thomas said? He is approving of it. This is belief. This is good, right? Um, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I'd say John 20, 28 is a helpful passage. But my point here is Jesus is um, God. So when we're talking about each person of the Godhead is fully God, Jesus is fully God. He receives worship, um, John 1.1. 1, 1. He is God. We're, we're explicitly told that in John 1.1. 1, 1. There are a lot of other passages we could look at, but we'll stop there for now. Um, we see the Holy Spirit is fully God. Look at um, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> What's happening in Acts chapter 5? Does anyone remember? We have the first... Yeah, so we have the first uh, church discipline case, right? It's a pretty... Uh, Significant one. Uh, Acts 5, verses 3 through 4. Peter said to Ananias, so, so Ananias um, and Sapphira, they uh, sold property and they brought the money and they said, yep, this is, this is all the money. We're giving it all to the church. Um, they didn't give it all, which was actually not the problem. The problem was that they lied because they wanted everyone to think how generous they were. And instead of just saying, we're giving a portion of this, they said, no, we're giving it all. They wanted everyone to think, you know, so they, they lied um, and says, uh, Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart, this is verse three, to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Um, so by the way, one quick side note, um, some people in Acts, they want to say that like the early church practiced communism. That doesn't work with this, right? People, people have possessions that God gives them. Now, they are being generous, which does push back against some of the way we tend to think about economics, right? As we, we tend to think me, 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 mine, 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 mine. It's all about me. No, we, 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 everything belongs to God and we need to be generous in giving it, but he does give it to individuals to steward, right? Okay, side note, anyway. Um, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You see, the, there, there's, there's like an equal sign here. The Holy Spirit, you lied to the Spirit, you lied to God. So the, so the Spirit is God. 
Other passages, you don't have to turn there. 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 3 speak of uh, Christians and the church as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Who dwells in the temple? God, right? Remember the whole thing in Leviticus. The, the tabernacle, which pointed to the temple, that's where God dwells. So to say that the Holy Spirit, you are the, you are the temple and the Spirit dwells in you is to say God dwells in you. In other words, it shows something of the deity of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Passages that show that all three are equal, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So we have all three persons mentioned together. Um, think about it. How would it sound if we said, like, uh, we're going to baptize you in the name of the Father and of the apostles and of your pastor? There's a problem. Right? So my, my point is, by listing all three, we are showing there's an equality here. You're not going to throw, you're not going to say God and then here's some random thing that's not God and we're going to, no, the sentence is structured so that we understand equality. We see that in the Matthew 28 passage, we see it in the 2 Corinthians 13 passage. Because why? God is not going to share his glory with another. I think it's in Isaiah, right? Somewhere, I don't know. One of the prophets says that. So he's not going to share his glory with another. Does someone know that? Okay, I thought someone knew the passage. But anyway, if you think of it later, shout it out. Um, He's not going to share his glory with another, and so we see that happening here. It must be that all three are equally God. So this rules out some false ideas about God. Number one, tritheism. We do not have three gods because we saw in Isaiah, and we see it throughout the Bible, there is one God, right? Uh, Modalism. Um, Does anyone know what modalism is? I want to explain it real briefly. All right, give us the... Yes, yes. So by the way, uh, coming up with... um, um, analogies to express who the, the Trinity is usually a bad idea. I think there's probably a reason the Bible doesn't really give us analogies on that. Um, because some people will be like, you know, it's, it's like, it's like uh, liquid water and then gas and then solid. You know, that, that's what it is to be the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, the problem is that water is not all three of those things at one time. So the, that, that really misses a pretty key point that God is God. One God for all eternity in three persons, Right? Um, so yes, yeah, so it's this idea that, that God appears in different modes at different times. So generally what the, the, the view would be in the Old Testament, we have the Father. Uh, with the coming of Christ, we have uh, him as the Son. In other words, he's no longer the Father, he is now the Son. With, with the ascension of the Son, we now have the giving of the Spirit, and God is the Spirit. God has, he goes from Father to Son to Spirit. He's kind of transitioning, kind of like ice can go to water, can go to steam. Right? That is not the biblical picture that we have. Uh, Matthew 3, 16 through 17. This is a problem for people who hold to modalism. Uh, when Jesus baptized, was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We have all three members of the Trinity actively doing something all at the same time. Does that make sense? So we can't have modes. Um, okay, Arianism affirms there is one God, um, kind of like modalism. Modalism tries to say there's one God, but then denies that he eternally exists in three persons. And Arianism specifically um, denies that the Son and Spirit are God. So modalism will still say, yeah, the Son is God and the, and the Spirit is God, but you don't have Father, Son, and Spirit all the time. Okay, Arianism says um, you have 
you have the father and you got the son, but the son is not God. There was a time when the son did not exist and he was created. That, that was kind of the most basic version of Arianism. It's taken various forms over the uh, centuries, but that's one form of it. Um, so uh, it could be that, that, that Jesus was adopted and got some sort of God-like status, but he, he was not God. Um, so these don't line up with the biblical picture. So to sum up, God is triune. We worship one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I give you some, um, uh, well, we can look at it real quick. The parts of the Nicene Creed, uh, as, as, um, as it has been added to at the Council of Constantinople a little bit later. So I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and then it says a bunch about the Father, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So that's what we're talking about. There's one substance. We have one God, and so Father, Son, and Spirit share in the substance, but they are distinct. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. So the addition, uh, if you're wondering why there's an addition, the addition to Constantinople was a little more detail about the Holy Spirit. Because during the, the Nicene controversy, the issue was Arianism. Arian was running around, and he was writing a bunch of good songs about how there was a time when the Spirit, when, when the Son was not, and he became, so he's kind of like spreading his lies through catchy music. Uh, and people are catching on to that. I mean, not a lot has changed, right? I mean, um, we, we can we can bypass our logic and thinking with things like entertainment and things like that. Um, which, by the way, I mean, music's a good gift, right? But uh, if, we, if we don't think about what we're doing, we have problems. Um, anyway, so uh, later on, though, the issue becomes more about, okay, well, now they, they kind of settle the issue about, no, the Son, we clearly see in the Scripture, the Son is God. There's no question about that. Um, and then uh, later on, people are like, well, what about the Spirit? Come on, the Spirit's not God, right? And so then there's a little bit of clarification where they add more details uh, and say, no, this is what we have seen in the Scripture, and we're writing it out to refute heretics, Okay. It's not like when they wrote it out, it was the first time they believed it. It was, hey, there's an issue and we need to be very clear. This is what we see in the scriptures, what we have seen in the scripture. We're not changing our view. The heretics have changed their view. We want to make it clear that they are wrong. Okay? Make sense? All right. Uh, now it is time to look specifically at the person of the Holy Spirit. We cannot explore every facet of his person, but we're going to look at some things. We're not going to talk too much about his specific work that he has given. So one thing we will you, you can see is the Father, Son, and Spirit each have, there, there are unique uh, things that they, they do in creation and in salvation and things like that, but we still have one God. So we're not going to get all into the, the, the work. We're just going to talk about the person of the Spirit. And mainly what we want to see is he is not a force. He has personal qualities. So who is the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit? First, he is fully God, and, perf and so we've kind of already established that, but I want to add this. He possesses the perfections of God's character. So it's kind of another way of just reinforcing that he actually is God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. But it also just kind of fills out, okay, we see throughout Scripture he possesses the attributes of God. Okay? So uh, we're not going to turn to a bunch of these passages. I'm just going to read them. Uh, holiness, Romans 1.4, he's referred to as the Spirit of Holiness. Uh, he's also referred to as the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, so he's set above all creation. And, and uh, he's perfect in all he does. He's eternal. Hebrews 9.14, the eternal spirit. Uh, he's omnipresent. Psalm 139, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He's omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2.10, these things God has revealed to us through the spirit for the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
uh, omni, omnipotent. So he's got all power. Luke 135, and the angel answered her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Sovereign, 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. He has a sovereign will. The sovereign will of God is the same as the will of the spirit. Okay, so we see the perfections of God's character all present in the spirit. That's not surprising since we've already established he is fully God. The second thing, and this is kind of one of the last things we'll talk about, is he is not a force, uh, but possesses personal traits. So this is where I think sometimes we kind of get off, uh, probably unintentionally, we, we kind of almost start to think of the spirit as if he's just this force. I, I say he, as if it is a force. That's, that's the way we tend to think, right? Um, but it, the spirit is he, not it. The spirit is, is personal, right? Um, so let's look at some verses here. Um, John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But I, if I go, I will send him to you. A helper, the word helper there is a person who comes to another person's aid. There's personality there. Um, it, you could think of it kind of like uh, an attorney coming to help someone, right? There's a, there's a person who comes. It's not like you get assigned to a computer that's going to make your case for you or something. Or if you're in need of something, it's not like you know some robot's going to come fix it. It's a person, a helper who comes. Um, also, it's interesting that the, the, uh, the Greek word for spirit, so um, we don't really have this quite as much in English, um, kind of sort of do, but uh, in, in Greek, they've got like gender for their words, right? Latin's that way. So, so you can have neuter words, right? Um, grammatically speaking. So spirit is actually a neuter word, which means it, it neither would get a fe female or male pronoun. That's really what that means. Well, when you see the spirit mentioned in the scripture, we're getting male pronouns, he. What I'm saying is you're getting he, not it. That's all I'm trying to say. The scripture doesn't say it when it refers to the, the spirit as if we're talking about some impersonal thing. We're talking about personal being, he. Uh, the spirit possesses mental traits. Uh, my mind, 1 Corinthians 2.10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So there, there's a searching, a mental working going on. The Spirit has will or volition. 1 Corinthians 12.11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. We have emotion. Uh, Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We can grieve the spirit. Um, interestingly enough, we also saw with Anna and Sapphira, we can lie to the spirit. Now, not that he's deceived by our lies, right? But we can say things that are false to him. Again, showing his personality, right? Um, communication. The spirit communicates. This is a personal trait. First Timothy 4.1. Now the spirit expressly says there's a communication going on from the spirit. Relationship. Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we see the Spirit relating to his people and to the Father. I think that's what we're referring to there. Um, so that's, that's basically, in a nutshell, a uh, big time, you know, up, up high overview of the Spirit, of who God is and who the Spirit is, Okay. Um, as we wrap it up, I want to think a little bit about application real quick. Um, and specifically application about the person of the spirit. 
what I'd like for you to walk away with today in terms of how does this apply to you um, is realize and, and just remember, try to actively remember the spirit is not a force, the spirit is a person. And then what that means is when, this, when you think about the spirit indwelling you as a Christian, we're going to talk more about that in a future session, but that is true if you're a Christian. Um, this is person, right? The person of God is dwelling within his people through the person of the spirit. This isn't just some force. I mean, what we're talking about is, you know, we talk about um, uh, God is, is a refuge and a help in time of need. It's not just that I have to like ascend up into heaven, although we do that through prayer, that's true. But it's that God is actually with us. Not that you are God, you are not God, you are still you. The spirit is indwelling you, but anywhere you go, the spirit is with you, right? When you suffer, the spirit is with you. You don't have to go far to the throne of grace is what I'm saying because he's with you. He's dwelling in you, in your spirit. The spirit of God dwells there. He's your comforter. So when we think of him being a person, he's referred to as the comforter, right? He, he is with you in that. He, he is, the, is with us to purify us. He is setting us apart, making us more and more holy. So when I'm struggling with sin, it's not just this like, man, I don't even know, like I don't feel like I can go to God. God is with you already. So if, you, if you're more mindful, man, the spirit is with me, what do you do? You say, spirit, help me, right? I want to walk in your ways. Um, you're, you're, in other words, you're actively thinking about what it means. When, when you're tempted to sin, you're thinking, spirit, I don't want to grieve you. Help me not to grieve you. That's different than, well, I've got this just kind of computer force type thing within me, right? Like, like in Star Wars, you know, you don't, they don't grieve the force, Right? It's like you, you can like kind of lose, the, you can go to the dark side or something, but that's different. This is like, no, the spirit of God, God is in me. I do not want to grieve you, God. Help me. And when we sin, he's right there making, you know, along with the son, making intercession for us. When, when we go to the word of God, expect, go to it expectantly and prayerfully, spirit, teach me from your word. Right? Sometimes we go to the word and I think we don't expect anything's going to happen, but some of that is because we forget the spirit who inspired the word is with us. He is with us. And he can give us understanding into the scripture as we study it. It doesn't mean he bypasses your mind. He uses your mind. Yes, you're going to have to work and think hard. But again, it's kind of like the other, everything would be in vain if the spirit wasn't working. Good news is he's there. Spirit, help me understand the word that you've inspired and then help me to obey it. So, we want to um, recognize God is with us. When you feel like God is far away, think about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Right? God has given you his spirit. God is not far away. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't feel far away. The psalmist talks about that. Of course, we do have to acknowledge there's something different in the Old Covenant and the New. We'll get to that in a future session. Um, but for us, we still can feel like he's far away. But even, even better than what the psalmist had, we actually do, all of us have the spirit within us if we're in the New Covenant. That, that is something unique from the Old Covenant, I think. Um, but we still can feel that way, and I understand that. But, but what should we do? Well, be mindful. Man, the Spirit is with me. And then, and then talk to God, right? Go to God. Run to God. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Father, we are thankful for the, the um, work you have done in redeeming us and giving us your word. We're thankful um, that you've done this through your Spirit. We're thankful that you sent the Son to redeem us. And... Um, God, we just praise you for who you are. God, our, our minds are, are finite. We confess there are many things that would make our heads spin this morning as we, we try to contemplate 
um, what it is to know you, the, the one God in three persons. Um, God, our minds are, are in many ways blown by that and humbled by that and um, worshipful as we, we think about who you are. Um, we, we could not have created you. We, we would not have created a God that looks like this, but you are the one true God. And so we worship you for who you are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.